Um, I wanted to start off with a story from my elementary school years. I think looking at those years, the year that I have the most memories is, is kindergarten, which might not make the most sense as that's the longest ago, uh, but it kind of makes sense in that it was a new thing, you know, kindergarten. It was the only year I had at that school, and a, a lot of those memories were uh, rather traumatic, at least for a five-year-old. So uh, this particular one, you know, kindergartners, elementary schoolers, they have these special days. So we had dinosaur day, right? Everyone's coming and they're bringing their dinosaur toys with them. They've got all these 3D dinosaur toys. Well, I, I don't know exactly why, if this is like the only thing that we had um, or, or my parents had to go buy something and they thought, you know what? I don't want to go buy a dinosaur toy. We don't have one of those. So let me get something cheap and inexpensive, which I honestly don't blame them for. I had a stencil, a dinosaur stencil that I brought. Just this little two-dimensional dinosaur stencil. And I get to school and I go up to my friends and they're all playing with their, their 3D dinosaur toys. And I'm like, oh, let me play with you. And they looked at me and they said, you can't play with us. You have a stencil dinosaur. We have real dinosaurs. And it was, it was sad. I was rejected by my peers because I didn't have the right kind of dinosaur. My wife says that's the saddest story that I tell, um, which might be true. But today we're going to be talking about somebody who was rejected by society, not because he had the wrong kind of dinosaur, but for a different reason entirely. Uh, and as Joel mentioned last week, we're, we're in a season right now where we're doing meals. This past month, several, many of you this past week had a Thanksgiving dinner. Um, you might have even this past month had a Friendsgiving gathering. It's possible uh, in, in the next few weeks you've got plans already set up or you're going to be getting plans set up to get together with people to celebrate Christmas. And, and those, those often will involve a meal. And as Joel spoke on last week, those meals, they can be a fresh reminder of the meal that Jesus is preparing for us one day to share with him. Now, last week, Joel spent time talking about the Last Supper. He spent time talking about a lot of meals, and I thought actually it was an incredible sermon how he worked through and was able to use meals as a way to show us uh, our, our human state. But he, he spent some time talking about the Last Supper. That was an expected meal. Every Jew had it celebrating the Passover. And when Jesus had that Last Supper, he had it with an expected group of people, his closest friends, his disciples. Today we're going to be looking at a very controversial meal that Jesus shared in Luke chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles nearby, uh, open up to Luke chapter 5. This was a meal shared with people who were not expected to be seen eating with Jesus. And as you're opening to Luke 5, I, I, wanna, I want you to think about in your life, who is somebody that you would never expect to eat with you, that you would never invite. They would never even cross your mind, or maybe they would cross your mind because you knew I don't want to invite them. It could be a specific person, or, or maybe it's, it's more of, of a general, a type of person, all right? So maybe it's something like, I don't know, like Yankee fans, right? That's fair. You wouldn't want to eat with the Yankee fans, right? Whatever it might be. Sorry if you're a Yankee fan out there. I'm a Red Sox fan, so... I want you just to, to think about that person and kind of set that aside, all right? The story that we're looking at today, it's found in all three synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic gospels because they all have a lot of stories, uh, a lot of the same stories told from different perspectives. Uh, and there's, there's a lot that, that you can look at with that. But uh, 
we're going to reference Matthew and Mark, but we're going to land here and, and spend some time in Luke because I like some of the detail that Luke gives. So we're going to look at, at Luke 5, 27, uh, where Jesus calls Levi, who's also known as Matthew. It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in the, his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you would give us an opportunity to gather I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be humble this morning to hear you speak to our hearts wherever we're at, to listen to your spirit moving in our souls. May you uh, empower my voice and, Lord, help our hearts to hear you. In your name I pray. In this passage, we have two main characters. Well, there's several characters, but two main characters that I want to spend a little bit of time starting off, kind of uh, diving into a little bit more to give us some historical context. First, we have the Pharisees. Now, when you hear Pharisee, from a 21st century Christian perspective, you probably have some negative thoughts, right? They were the bad guys. But I want you to, to forget that. Because we want to look at this from a historical perspective, from the the eyes of a first century Jew. What did they think about Pharisees? Were they the bad guys? No. These were the religious leaders of the day. They were the cultural elite because the the Jewish nation, well, it wasn't a, a nation because they were being ruled by the Romans, but they were a religious culture. And so these are the cultural elite of the time. Their name literally means separated ones. They knew the law inside and out. They practiced the letter of the law. When people saw them walking down the street, people probably, you know, they they would want to straighten up and try to be noticed for doing the right thing around that person. They were not the enemy. They were the role models for Jews everywhere. On the other side, we have the tax collectors. Now, for this section here, I I did a lot of research from a particular uh, book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim uh, that that I pull a lot of this information from. I thought it was a very fantastic resource that I found, uh, and and I would encourage you guys, if ever you're you're looking at historical study of uh, what things were like in first century, to, to look into that resource. But tax collectors, they were friends of the enemy. Thus, they were the enemy. They worked for the Roman people to help the Romans take money from the Jews. These are the same Romans who have been ruling and inflicting harm on the Jewish people for years. In 63 BC, there was a a, a siege called uh, the Siege of Pompeii, Pompeii Siege. He was a general. And he, during the siege, the temple was desecrated and 12,000 Jews were killed. In 40 BC, Julius Caesar had died uh, and, and thus, the world, the Roman world, was going a little bit crazy because people didn't know what was about to happen. People came into the Holy Land and into Israel and tried to, to take advantage of the fact that there was no Roman emperor and try to take over Israel. Not necessarily the Jewish people, but other people came in. 
Well, Herod the Great then moves in with 30,000 infantry and 6,000 cavalry, completely changing the dynamic of that area. The Roman people put down rebellions by Jewish zealots like Theodos and Judas the Galilean, as we see reference in Acts chapter 5, killing them and killing their men. These were oppressive people. Their soldiers lived among the Jewish people as a constant reminder, seeing them on the streets all the time. In fact, there was a law that stated that any Roman soldier could pick any civilian and make them carry their stuff for up to a mile. Could not go further than a mile. Once you got to a mile, you could drop the stuff and go back to what you were doing. But imagine just how inconvenient that would be. These Romans, the enemy, is who the tax collectors worked for. They were Jewish sellouts supporting the enemy. Perhaps a a, a good, more recent analogy would be to think about when the Nazis were invading countries, moving into a country. People are, are hiding, hiding if they're Jewish or hiding if they're just known enemies of the Nazis. But people from that country that would say, hey, you know what? I'm going to befriend the Nazis. I'm going to tell them where these people are hiding. That's the same kind of hatred that you would feel if one of your countrymen did that, that the Jews felt about these tax collectors. And there are two different types of tax collectors. We had the gabai. The gabai were the ones that collected the regular dues. These were set things at a set rate, income tax, uh, property tax, things like that. Now, tax collectors, what they would do, how they would make money is they would charge more and they could pocket whatever's extra. Rome said, this is what we need, and they would, they would be able to charge above that and take what's extra. And, and so even the goodbye, the goodbye would do that. Sorry, my voice cracked. Even the goodbye would do that, but the goodbye uh, were not as hated because people were knowing this is what's expected. This is what's going to be taxed. The other type, were the mocus. The mocus taxed all imports and exports as well as what was used to transport these things. So according to Edersheim, uh, they would ta- uh, create taxes to, to uh, various different taxes such as on axles, wheels, pack animals, pedestrians, roads, highways, on admission to markets, on carriers, bridges, ships, and quays. I don't even know what quays are on crossing rivers, on dams, on licenses, in short, on such a variety of objects that even the research of modern scholars has not been able to identify all the names. The point is, they taxed a lot of different things. And it wasn't, you wouldn't always know what you were about to be taxed for. And since they made money by by skimming off of the top, taking whatever extra, they could tax, if they wanted to make extra money, they could tax on more items to make extra money. To gather these taxes, they would have the people unpack their loads, open packages, and they could even read their letters, an invasion of privacy that all of us would hate. In Mark's rendition of this story, we see that Jesus was beside the sea at this point, which means that Matthew, his booth, is beside the sea, meaning he likely taxed even some of Jesus' disciples on their catches of fish. The Talmud, which is an ancient uh, historical writing on the Jewish people, it says that Mochus would pick and choose who to charge, perhaps even taking bribes to, to not charge some or showing favoritism to others. And there were two classes even within the Mochus. There was the great Mochus. They were the ones who, who they hired others to collect the taxes, but they were in charge. 
but because they weren't the ones on the ground, they weren't seen as much. But then there were the little mochas. The little mochas were the ones who they would tax, they would be the ones at the booth going through, invading people's stuff, telling them the things that they needed to pay taxes on. These were the hated of the hated. And this is what Matthew was, a little mochus. So in this story, we meet two extremes of socially accepted people, the beloved Pharisee and the hated little mochus. And in the middle of all of this is Jesus, who defies cultural norms to give us a clearer understanding of how we should see and treat those that we are prone to avoid or even hate in our own lives. The disciples who at this point were still being assembled, Jesus is still calling the disciples as Matthew is one of them. They would be seeing the example of the Pharisees that they had grown up and culturally known. These are the religious example countered by this new religious leader, Jesus, and his way to live. And as we look at this story, I want us to see it as best we can through the disciples' eyes. They're deciding if Jesus is worth following. Some of them might have thought they were lucky to be chosen to follow a man who was like a Pharisee, a religious leader, but actually was willing to reach down and train them. During this story, they would see another example of how the religious leaders that they knew and this new religious leader were very different people when it comes to their treatment of Matthew, the little mochus. So I've got, uh, if you have your sermon notes, I've got a table there, and we're going to kind of jump back and forth comparing Pharisees and Jesus and their treatment of Matthew. And we'll start on, on the Pharisee side. The Pharisees condemned him for his sin. They condemned him for his sin. As mentioned, the Pharisees were the religious leaders. Thus, when they cut someone off, it was not simply that person being cut off from knowing them relationally. It was that person being cut off spiritually and culturally because, again, Judaism was a spiritual culture. They were essentially saying, you're a lost cause. This is how the Pharisees felt about tax collectors. They were lumped in with sinners quite often. It's a common pairing to say tax collectors and sinners. It's like peanut butter and jelly or eggs and bacon or turkey and stuffing, if you will. We see it show up nine different times in the Gospels. It was a common expression, and it also is how the Pharisees viewed tax collectors. Because in their mind, they were sinners. Because these people were were greedy. They were taking unfairly from other people. And so there's a good argument to be made to, yeah, they were sinners. They were charging taxes that were not taxes that they were told to charge in Scripture. Because there were temple taxes that the Pharisees would do. Well, those were Scripture. These are the taxes we should be paying. But these tax collectors, they're sinning. They're stepping outside of scripture to strengthen their own wallet. Tax collectors to Pharisees, they were like outcasts. They were like the leper or the Samaritan. They were to be avoided. They couldn't be eliminated. They couldn't be removed from the town like lepers were because they worked for the Roman people. And this is where they did their work. But the Pharisees, they might walk past them and and not pay them any mind. Or they might even condemn them as they walked past if they did engage them for being sinners and working for man instead of God. Directly or indirectly, the Pharisees condemned tax collectors, including Matthew, for their sin, but not Jesus. Jesus included Matthew despite his sin. 
He included Matthew despite his sin. If you break this down, it's amazing to see the order of things and the intentionality of Jesus. Matthew did not come to Jesus as many did seeking to follow him. He was not in the crowd following Jesus at that point as Jesus was teaching. He was sitting at his booth working, collecting taxes. And Jesus intentionally stops and talks to him. And Jesus didn't say, hey, Matthew, leave your earthly possessions and then follow me. He didn't say, hey, repent of your sin and then follow me. Jesus simply said to a man who was working at the tax booth, a man in a profession known for its greed and as a traitor of the Jewish people and an extension God, Jesus said to this man, follow me. Was Jesus condoning Matthew's lifestyle? by not calling him out at this moment? Was he making a statement to the disciples that, hey, you can live in sin and follow God? No, because Jesus knew that the reality is you cannot truly follow Jesus and live in sin. Something has got to give. So when he calls Matthew to follow him, he knows when Matthew follows me, he knows what's about to happen. He's going to leave his life. For the Pharisees, sin disqualified Matthew from an opportunity to know God. But for Jesus, sin was the reason that Matthew needed to know God. And because of this, Jesus saw something the Pharisees missed. So we're going to stay on the Jesus side if you're taking notes. Jesus saw who he could become. Jesus saw who he could become. Jesus knew intimately because Jesus is God the saving power of God. He he knew that God could do an amazing thing in Matthew. That is why Jesus associated so closely with sinners. So much so that in Luke 7, 34, Jesus himself admits that he had a reputation as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Because Jesus knew that the sin of a man is not who he is. Sin is what he does. And a savior is what he needs. And when he meets that savior, he will be changed forever. And that's what happened to Matthew. When Jesus said, follow me, Matthew was working at his tax booth, collecting money, growing his own pocket, giving into his own greed. But the passage says he left everything. He left his money. He left his job. Could you imagine people seeing Matthew get up from his table and walk away. Leave, maybe in the middle of taking taxes from somebody. That person probably would have been pretty grateful to to pocket that money back into their their sack there. But imagine the response of of his boss, the, the great Mochus, who probably was livid, would have fired him if, of course, Matthew didn't in that process quit. What Matthew did was unheard of for a greedy tax collector. And we can understand that because you know anybody in this culture that that has a cultural understanding of money, they're going to be shocked to see anybody walk away from money. But more than that, he doesn't just walk away, he throws a feast. He didn't just say, you know, I've made enough money here to live comfortably, so let's go on a new adventure and I'll make sure that I, I take care of that money so it lasts. He generously threw a feast for Jesus and his disciples. 
And I believe that we see just how much Matthew changed by his own humility that we see in his rendition of the story, where Matthew does not mention that he threw a great feast. It's a detail that that we see in Luke, but we don't see Matthew point out. Because Matthew, I believe, wanted to be as little of the focus as he could in this story. Because he wanted the focus to be on, on Jesus and on how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and was shifting the tide of religious understanding of the day. And he invites, it tells us, a large company of tax collectors. And Matthew and Mark include sinners in that group. Matthew just had his life changed by deciding to follow Jesus. And now he's inviting his friends and co-workers who desperately need Jesus to meet him. Matthew just morphed right before everyone's eyes from a tax collector to an evangelist, bringing people to Jesus. This is an incredible transformation. And all because Jesus saw who Matthew could become through the saving power of God. But somehow the Pharisees missed all of this because the Pharisees saw only who he was. They saw only who he was. At this party, the Pharisees show up and they don't see a changed man. They don't see an evangelist. They see Matthew still as the man sitting at the tax booth. In their mind, he is still a tax collector. He is a sinner. They missed out on witnessing an incredible transformation. I had a friend once share uh, an an analogy with me that's really stuck with me over the years. I I think it's a great analogy. Where where how sometimes we view people as a picture. All right? We view them as a picture. We take a picture of them at their worst. You know, they sinned against us. We snap a picture. They betrayed us. We snap a picture. They hurt someone we love. We snap a picture. And forever, when we hear their name, we pull out that picture of that moment in our minds and all the feelings associated with it. And that's how we see them. It could have been 30 years ago, but that's how we see them. But people are not a picture. People are a video. You ever watch a TV show or a movie, and there's this character early on who who you hate. They're just awful. You can't stand them. But as the series goes on, or as the movie goes on, that character changes. And by the end, you're like, hey, I actually, I really like this character. And they become one of your favorite characters. And then sometime you watch one of the early episodes or, or the movie again, you see the beginning, and, and you're like, wow, I forgot that they were so awful. It's because they change over time, and that is how we as people are. We have the ability to change. We are videos, not pictures. And that ability is supercharged when God enters the picture. The Pharisees saw Matthew as a picture of who he was. And as a result, they missed out on seeing who God changed him into. Jesus saw him as a video. And as a result, was able to help him see his full potential. One of the big reasons that this is the case is because the Pharisees' actions were led by self-righteousness. The Pharisees' actions were led by self-righteousness. We've already documented the difference between Pharisees and tax collectors. Pharisees were seen as righteous and focused on living a righteous and separate life. Tax collectors were, were led by greed. 
thus far from righteous. Thus the righteous Pharisees could not engage with the wicked tax collectors. The pride of their hearts to think of themselves as righteous created a barrier between them and the tax collectors. In their minds, since they were righteous, they were to hate sin. And since tax collectors were sinners, the Pharisees were to hate them. That was their understanding. It's hard to see the power of the forgiveness of God in the life of someone that we refuse to forgive. It's hard to see the power of the forgiveness of God in the life of someone else that we refuse to forgive. And that's what it was for the Pharisees. Their self-righteousness led them to see Matthew as a sinner that he was, not the man being transformed by the power of God. And that's what led them to show up at this feast grumbling. When they enter the scene in this story, they find the disciples and they grumble at them. Now, why did they go to the disciples? We're not really sure. But remember, Jesus had just called these men. And by following Jesus, this religious leader, who was countering the Pharisees, they were not following the Pharisees. So perhaps the Pharisees thought that they could stop this whole Jesus movement by persuading his disciples to abandon him. Perhaps they were trying to get the disciples to see how this man was not living the way that that these disciples had been taught by the Pharisees for years of how they were to live. He was eating with sinners, sharing a meal with sinners. So they asked them this question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now this was not a question they really wanted an answer to. They weren't looking to learn, they were being critical. It'd be as if you're at a grocery store with your kid and, and you know, you're grabbing stuff off the shelf, then you turn and look and your kid's on the floor licking the ground. You would probably say, what are you doing? Now you're not asking because you want to learn. You're not like, hey, what, what are you doing down there? What's that about? You know, is that, is that something I should try? Probably tastes scrumptious, doesn't it? No, that's not what you're thinking. You're asking, what are you doing? Why would you be licking the floor? That's disgusting. Stand up. This is the same kind of question the Pharisees are asking. What are you doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? This is not how a righteous man should behave. And by their definition of righteousness, they were right. For to them, righteousness was about staying clean. And those tax collectors and sinners were unclean. They were to be avoided at all costs. Their question was meant to destroy the influence that Jesus was having on his disciples. So in a sense, their question was actually more of a statement. It showed their theology soaked in self-righteousness too, though. But before the disciples have a chance to respond, Jesus chimes in and shows that Jesus' actions are led by mercy. Jesus' actions are led by mercy. Jesus used an analogy the Pharisees need to hear. He refers to the tax collectors and sinners as sick. Now, this part the Pharisees would have been all on board with. Yes, they're definitely sick. That's why we avoid them. But then he mentions if they're sick, that means they need a doctor. Now, this is something the Pharisees hadn't necessarily considered. Jesus is saying that he came as the great physician, not to be with the well, but the sick. These people here dining with him, he's saying, this is why I came. 
He sums it up by saying, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, this is a a, a subtle jab, if you will, at, at the Pharisees. The Pharisees approached ministry by calling the righteous. They had a club mentality. If you were righteous, you were allowed to be in their club. You had the right kind of dinosaur. Jesus had a mission mentality. You aren't righteous, so you need to be here. You don't have the right kind of dinosaur. But join in and let me bless you by taking that which is an imitation and replacing it with the real thing. In Matthew's account of this story, he adds something else that Jesus said that Mark and Luke left out. In Matthew 9.13, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the right I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This I want you to understand how crazy it is that Jesus said this. All right? Jesus, a carpenter, is speaking to the Pharisees, who were the most learned men in the land. And he says, Go and learn what this means. Go and learn. what. Do you understand how crazy this was for a first century Jew to hear Jesus talking to the Pharisees this way? He's saying, you teachers of the law, you think you know so much. Let me teach you something. Then on top of that, he quotes scripture at them. Specifically, he's quoting Hosea 6.6. Hosea 6.6 says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The Pharisees were so focused on following the laws. They made sacrifices. They honored the Sabbath. But they failed to understand the heart of God in their treatment of others. Jesus is telling them by quoting this verse that they are the true transgressors. Jesus applies a passage. And if you look at that passage, you'll see the context of it. It's devoted to sinners He applies a passage devoted to sinners to the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees thought they had it all figured out. But Jesus exposes a major hole in their religion. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, that's because it was a religion for them and it's a relationship for Jesus. i got to share a pet peeve of mine. I hate that expression. When people say it's it's not a religion, it's a relationship. I hate it for a few reasons. One, it pits two unlike things against each other. They're not opposites. You don't have to choose religion or relationship. They're not opposite things. You can have both. For Christianity is a religion, but it's a complete religion, not a partial one. James tells us in James 1.27, religion, religion, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Two things to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. The Pharisees were great at keeping themselves unstained from the world. But to do it, they sacrificed that first part, mercy. A complete religion is one where we show mercy and abstain from sin. Where we live in the world to show them mercy, but not of the world following their practices. That is a complete religion. Jesus calls the Pharisees out on this and will continue to throughout his ministry, not just in this example that we just looked at in the calling of Matthew. And again, we were looking at it from the disciples' perspective. 
But what does this story have to do with us? Well, we're like the disciples. We're being led by Jesus to live out a pure and undefiled religion, but still being influenced by the partial religion of the day. It's easy for Christians to be like Pharisees and see Christianity as a club mentality. When I was in college, I had a friend who was a a drummer in a heavy metal Christian band. And being in a a heavy metal band, he and his bandmates dressed like it. And being Christians, they went to church. Well, he told me one Sunday they'd gone to a church, and I think he said this happened several times actually, and they go to the church, they show up at the church, and people meet them at the door and basically tell them, you're not allowed to come in here because you're not dressed the part. It's so e- it's easy for us to think that, to see that, and be like, wow, that's awful. How could you turn someone away from church? But it's easy for us to fall into that Pharisee mindset, that legalistic self-righteousness. We have tax collectors in our lives. People we have trouble loving and showing mercy to. Perhaps that person you thought of that you would never invite to a meal or that type of person that you would never invite to a meal. And so we need to be intentional to shed the Pharisee within us and to put on Jesus. And there's two ways that we can do that. Well, there's a lot of ways we can do that, but two ways from this passage that I want to pull out here to close our sermon. First is we need to reject elitism and remember your journey. Reject elitism and instead remember your journey. The Pharisee in us likes to think we're elite. We're something special. We're righteous, uh, at least compared to others. We see ourselves as superior and them as inferior. They're living in sin. They're embracing wickedness. We are not. And this comes up in many different forms. We think about the, usually we think about those hot button sins, right? We think about you know, things like people that struggle with homosexuality, uh, people who are murderers, people who are adulterers, people who are drug dealers, people who, who struggle with uh, gender identity or transgender. All of these different things, we're going to throw those And we're going to say, look, we're not like that. We're righteous. And and it can come in many other forms, too, for Christians. Even as things that are not sin, but we hold in high regard. We're elite because of our practice. How we practice Christianity makes us elite compared even to other Christians. We're elite because of our political views. We're elite because of our traditions. We're elite because of the company we keep. We are elite because of our financial standings. Now, some of these sound more shallow to us than others, but in reality, all of these are shallow. And Paul's letter to the Corinthians reminds us how shallow these are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, were inherit the kingdom of God. Now, stopping here, the Pharisee in us can strongly agree with that. Like, yeah, those people won't inherit the kingdom of God. They're not like us. But Paul isn't done. In verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul reminds us to remember our journey. We are sinners. We are flawed. 
we are all equally in need of a savior. The man who goes to church needs Jesus just as the man who's never darkened the chores of church. The Democrat needs Jesus just as much as the Republican. The middle class needs Jesus just as much as the upper class or the lower class. We all need Jesus. And the only thing that makes us as Christians different than those living unrepentive in their sins is not that we are better. It's not that we no longer sin. We all know that's true. But that we have been found by a Savior. We have heard his call to follow him. We were sitting at our tax booth and heard Jesus as he walked by and saw us and called for us to follow him. And we did. And he changed us. We were changed not by our own strength, but by the power of the almighty God, that same power that could change even the most wicked of sinners. He changed us and gave us a fresh start. That's the only thing that makes us different. And because of this reality, we must reject separatism and remember our call. We must reject separatism and remember our call. The Pharisee in us says, because I'm a Christian, I must not associate with those living in sin. Now, let me be clear. We're not Jesus. And thus, we are susceptible to temptation or sin. So, for instance, if you're somebody who's, who's dealt in the past uh, with, with alcoholism, and you have a friend who's not a Christian, and you want to bring the gospel to them, you might not want to do it at a bar just because you don't want to put yourself in that situation. But we must be wise to watch our steps as we engage the world, but we're not to practice separatism like the Pharisees. Now, you might be asking, how, well, how do I know if I'm doing that or not? Well, you might be at practicing separatism if you're always surrounded by Christians and have no non-Christian friends. You might be practicing separatism if you have a social media full of people only you agree with. You might be practicing separatism if you make light of serious sin issues, mocking those who practice homosexuality, for instance, or identify as transgender. You might be practicing separatism if you quickly dismiss those who disagree with you on controversial issues without being willing to stop and listen to them. You might be practicing separatism if you get upset when someone says something that challenges your thinking and cut them off instead of testing your challenged belief against scripture. This is not how Jesus did ministry. And it's not how he calls us to do ministry. Jesus gave us as a church a clear mandate to every one of us in Mark 16, verse 15, where, he says, where it says, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. He did not say stay put and hidden so, so the world doesn't corrupt you. He didn't say, hey, stay right there and, and I'm going to bring people to you. He said, go, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. It couldn't be more clear. You see, when we point our fingers at others and say, they are sinners, Jesus points his finger at them and says, tell them about your Savior. When we point our fingers at others and mock their lifestyle, Jesus points his finger at them and says, show them my love. When we point our fingers at others and say, they don't belong here, Jesus points his finger at us and says, neither did 
you. Now show them the same mercy I showed you. Our call is not to abstain from the culture around us, but like Jesus, to engage with it, even sharing a meal with these people and show the culture the better way, the way of love. Our call is not to have a club mentality deciding who does and doesn't belong, but a mission mentality that sees the sick in need of a savior. Our call is not to be separatists practicing an incomplete religion, but to practice a complete religion that focuses on abstaining from sin, but showing mercy to the sinner. This is why we, like Jesus, need to eat with sinners. Because by eating with sinners, we show them the Savior who is a place ready at his table for all who call on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you called us. That even though we were wicked and vile and awful, you didn't keep that. You didn't allow that to keep you from, from associating with us this, to others so that they too can see and live in the light that you bring. In your name we pray.